morning. One of the things about being a guest speaker is that the hosts always feel obligated to introduce them in ways that are welcoming and kind and in a lot of ways not true. <laughs> so I, I thank Dorina so much for that kind introduction, but I'm afraid she might have set some expectations. So let me bring us back to earth a little bit. I'm going to let you all in on a little secret. Um, when I get invited to come and speak at a church like this, one of the main reasons I do it is because, as Pastor Chris so eloquently shared this morning, Sabbath is essential. It is so much a part of the way God created us. And so if I can give another fellow pastor a chance for Sabbath, I will do it. And so that's... that's but, but I'm going to let y'all in on a little trade secret. The reason a lot of us get invited is because the other thing I'm here to do is to make y'all miss Pastor Chris. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get done today, and then you are going to be so ready for him to be back up here. You're going to be like, okay, Pastor, we, we, took, you, you, we took you for granted. And now we appreciate you even more. That's what I'm here to do this morning. But uh, let me open up with a, just a brief prayer to bless this time in God's word. Father, I'm so grateful for the privilege of being here at Strong Tower. I have felt from the moment my wife and I set foot on these grounds, the joy and the presence that you are here and that you love this community, this family, and you are pleased with what you have planted in this place. And so now my prayer, Lord, is that you would take whatever I can bring this morning and that you would take those meager seeds and that you would be the one who would plant them, that you would be the one who waters them, that you would be the one who nourishes them so that long before I, long after I'm gone and forgotten, that there would be fruit that you brought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, the theme, or it's just something to kind of set the tone for what I'm talking about this morning, is I want you to think about exile. Exile. This, this state of human existence where you are homeless, where you are sojourning more than often due to forces beyond your control. And you are taken from the places where your roots were, where your people were, where your lives were, and you're forcibly planted, sometimes violently so, in foreign soil, in alien places and how that would impact the way you think and view the world and life. And that's the heart of the people to whom God is speaking in my passage this morning. But I want to set the stage. Now, I don't know how many of you guys are like me, but I grew up as a latchkey kid, so my childhood was so shaped by TV and movies, I tend to think in TV and movies, and so I, I, I kind of think cinematically. 
In fact, if I hadn't gone this route, if God had not put me in this life, I would have loved to be in filmmaking. So I'm going to do something. I'm going I'm to take you all to the movies with me. And so I want you to just sit back and kind of picture the scenes I'm painting for you. I can't put them on a screen, but our minds are, are fertile places to watch these scenes. So I want, to, I want you to imagine it's, it's sometime about 500 years or so before the time of Christ. And we are in Babylon. So for the people of God, this is a foreign land It's a hostile land because this is the land of their oppressors. It's the land of the nation that came in and destroyed their country and forcibly ripped them out of those places. The lucky ones were the ones who died in Jerusalem in those areas because they didn't have to live on and see where they are today. Now, you know the story of some of the more famous and elite people like Daniel and his friends, because Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, saw value in those people. They were educated. They were wealthy. And so he saw an opportunity to enrich his nation by stealing those and putting them into his places and putting them to service. But what about the poor? What about the uneducated? What about the forgotten? What about the people who are of mixed heritage? the people who society had deemed of little value. Well, they were either killed when the Babylonians first swept through or they were just left in the rubble to just fend for themselves. Some were migrated over forcibly to places like the place I'm about to describe. So there is a place in Babylon called the Kebar River, And it is a poor community of mixed hodgepodges culturally. Because in this place near the city of Nippur, archaeologists found that there were these vibrant pockets of Egyptians, Judahites, even people from the northern kingdom of Israel, poor, forgotten Babylonians, even Assyrians. So it was an incredibly multicultural, multilingual place, and it was the commonality that kind of bound everyone together in this place was, we are forgotten, we are exiles, even in our own land sometimes. And this is where the exiles were that Jeremiah is writing to, and this is where I want to take us. But in order for you to fully grasp the gravity of their hearts and where they were emotionally and mentally, I want to read this morning from Psalm 137. And I want to warn you, it is arguably one of the most difficult passages in Scripture because the psalmist is going to sing a song, but nothing like what our wonderful praise team was singing this morning. This was not a song of praise. This was not a song of of joy. It was a worship leader composing his heart of just absolute grief and ultimately bitterness. So if you want to follow along, please feel free to do so. But this is Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. 
There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you and if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, when the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell, tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's a whole other sermon that we would probably have to do if we really wanted to unpack this psalm. And, I, and, and maybe someday there'll be an opportunity to do that. But today, I just share this so that you can see and feel the depths of the heartbreak and heartache that was in the community of these exiles. They felt, they looked to God and felt forgotten. They looked at life and felt beaten down. They looked at their community and felt so out of place, out of joint. And this is why. Because for them, the destruction of Jerusalem, the vision of these fierce invading soldiers, murdering their pregnant women, killing their mothers, sending their fathers to the grave, killing their brothers in war, laying waste to their homes, tearing down the great temple, robbing the wealth of their nation. These were real memories. They lived through it. And this is why they sing this song. And it, this is why it is recorded in scripture by the author, director of this film. And so as you're kind of sitting there imagining this community singing songs like this, it is into this place that the prophet Jeremiah, the aptly named weeping prophet, is commissioned by the Lord with a word. And he says, I'm going to raise you up to send a letter to these exiles. They need to hear from me, and you will speak those words. Now, before I delve into that text, it's going to be Jeremiah 29. I need to give you some context for why Jeremiah's letter would be so controversial. Not as controversial as me picking Prince's hot chicken, but I'm, I, I am sorry. I make no apologies. Prince's hot chicken was so much better. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, th this, is why, this is why Jeremiah's letter was so controversial. At this time, there's something else happening. So I, as a director, I'm going to cut the scene. We're going to fade out on this weeping community and we're going to cut over to Babylon and in the palaces and the places of power where Daniel and his servant and his friends were serving. And during this time, there was instability. You see, Babylon was a, it was kind of a paper lion. 
They were not as powerful as they really thought they were. And so Nebuchadnezzar had turmoil even within his own house. There were questions about who would lead this country. And there were rumors of war because the Persians were on the rise to the east. And they would come through soon and make Babylon just a footnote in history. So during this time, a group of false prophets started rising up all over these communities where the exiles were, and they were preaching a false gospel. They were telling the exiles, you don't have to worry. God is not going to keep us in exile as he had said he would. We're going to return soon. In fact, get ready. Any day now, we get to go home. Babylon will fall. Here's the problem with the false prophets, other than the fact that it was false prophecy. They were making a mockery of God in their false prophecies because the reason the people were where they were was because for 400 years they had disobeyed God. Now, I know everybody thinks of their disobedience in the terms of idolatry, and that's not wrong, but we often kind of smooth over the nature of how their idolatries, plural, played out and what it was that actually ultimately angered God to the point of judging them into exile. So let me list for you what it was that God was actually addressing with these 70 years. These Israelites and the people of Judah First of all, the fact that they were a divided nation spoke to their disobedience. But on top of that, here are the things the prophets actually condemned over and over and over again if you were to go and just systematically study the books of the prophets. They oppressed the poor. What they did not do was they did not follow God's good laws and instructions. They were supposed to allow indentured servitude to be a safety net to help people avoid abject poverty. And at certain points every seven years, you are to release those people unconditionally, and you are supposed to send them out with a blessing so that they would not come back to abject poverty. The other thing they did not do was protect the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. Nicholas Walterstorff, theologian, calls them the quartet of the vulnerable because in that world and in that time, your power, your uh, security in life was determined by one major thing. Did you own land? And in a patriarchal ancient Near Eastern world, the only people who owned land were people who were considered people who owned the, or who were residents legally of that nation, meaning by birth, and people who had means. And finally, men. And so if you were a woman, if you were a widow, if you were an orphan with no father, if you were a foreigner, you could not own land. And it puts you in a place of great insecurity. And it puts you in a position to be exploited. And so the wealthy would do this. They would pull people into servitude due to their debt and poverty. And they would never let them out. The other way they did this was through unjust scales and weights. 
The rich had the means to manipulate the markets, and so they would always cause these transactions to magically be profitable for them and a loss for somebody else. The other thing they did was they refused to protect the most vulnerable. The laws in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are incredibly protective of the vulnerable. We don't teach this enough. And as a professor of Old Testament, I am shocked when my students don't know some of these things. But that's because that speaks to what our churches are saying these days. So this is why the people were in exile. It was sins like this, unjust scales, refusing to protect the vulnerable, refusing to honor those who God had deemed worthy of protection, breaking rules to line their own bank accounts at the expense of others. Yes, idolatry was real. Yes, the people were guilty of serving Baal and these other gods, but you know why they did it? Baal was a god of fertility. The real idol was always mammon. It was always money. And so in the pursuit of money, Israel was guilty of this cardinal sin. They shook their fist at the creator who said, you are to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth by working and eating by the sweat of your brow. But instead what Israel had mastered was I will work and I will not work. I will eat and even profit off of the sweat of another's brow. And this was their sins. So when the false prophet said, God's not judging us. Any second now, we are going to go back and everything will be back to normal. It was incredibly infuriating to the Lord. And so he commissions Jeremiah, a true prophet, and says, write a letter to the exiles. I need them to know the truth. And I need them to know my heart. And that brings us to our text. So in Jeremiah 29, I'd like to begin in verses 5 and 6. And so you can follow along with me. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Notice, he says, I carried you into exile. He takes ownership for this. He's saying, this is not some accident of history. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon didn't just go outside of my control. I did this. It's my judgment. And he says, now in verse 5, and this is the part that I think we all would say does not shock us. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry. And give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. I'm going to stop right there. This is a powerful message because in it you hear the echoes of the creation mandate. These are words of life. God is telling his exiled people something very precious here. I have not forgotten you and you are not dead. Yes, you are in a foreign place. You are in a place where you feel out of joint. You feel out of place. But I am with you. And so even in that foreign alien soil, you can still flourish. And I'm calling you to do it because you are not coming back anytime soon. 
So don't listen to those false prophets. But even in judgment, my mercy is greater still, is what he's saying. Another thing God is saying here is an important subtext. During those 400 years of the kingdom, one of the other idolatries that had emerged subtly in Israel and Judah was the people had stopped seeing God as the source of their life and the goodness of their existence. And they had become far too dependent on human institutions. They put their trust in the glory of Solomon's temple. They put their trust in the might of David's armies. They put their trust in the wealth of their storehouses. And they trusted in the ability of their nation to conquer and fight and take what was theirs. And God was saying, I'm not in any of those things. I am where I am, which is even here in this God, seemingly God-forsaken land. By the rivers of Babylon, I am with you. And your worship does not have to stop just because the glory of the temple is not here and your identity as a people does not disappear or cease to exist just because you have no king. I am your king. So, now we come to the shocking part of the letter. Verse 7 begins, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Why is this so shocking? In fact, some of you may be like, this, I love this verse. I pray this verse. This is, this is one of those verses I like to highlight in my scripture. Here's why it's so shocking. In Psalm 122, you see that the way the people would have recalled this phrasing would have been, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's how the song goes. That's how the psalmists have always sung it. That's how we learned it from our childhood, and that's how we always hear it in our ears. And so for them to hear, now seek the peace of the city to which you have been carried into exile. They're saying, that's not it. That's the wrong song. It sounds so off. It sounds discordant. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Amen. Yes. Praise God, we will do that. Seek the peace of this city. Remember what Psalm 137 said. May the Lord repay you, Babylon, for what you did to us. And blessed is the one who takes your children and dashes them against the rocks. Do you think those people were ready to seek the shalom of this place. Now, I have a suspicion that in this church, in this congregation, we have a community of great diversity in which many of us can relate to all of this. As a Korean-American immigrant, it was in my parents' lifetime that I saw pictures of our country leveled in a five-year war between superpowers who did not care one bit about us. And they tore our country in half 
and put us into a civil war that technically has not ended even to this day. But I'm not alone. I'm, I'm aware of the history of this very place, the ground that we are sitting on today. And to have Strong Tower Bible Church here, I guarantee you there was a wink when God planted this church. He knows exactly the history. And he knows who is here. But this is the way God operates. And so he says in a shocking twist, I don't want you to curse these people. I want you to bless them. I want you to seek their shalom. If you do a study of the word shalom, what you find is that it is much more than just peace, not peace only in the sense of absence of conflict. That word has much depth within the ancient Near Eastern context. It includes, if I can just give you a few examples of how else that word can be used, it includes prosperity, it includes wholeness, it includes flourishing, it includes health. And so for God to say, to seek the prosperity, health, wholeness, flourishing, profitability of this city to which I have taken you, it was shocking. And I'm sure for many of the exiles, they would have said, give me the false prophets. I, I like what they're saying better. I I'd rather just follow their good news because I want to go home, and I want it to go back to how it used to be. Boy, we, we hear about good old days, don't we? And it tells you a lot about whose good old days will tell you a lot about who's speaking. And so many of the exiles needed to hear Jeremiah's words. He's saying, no, no, stay here. Prosper. Now, there's, there's logic, so you're wondering, why would God say this? He knows the suffering of his people. Surely God is not that cruel that he would tell his people, I have seen your suffering, and what I'm going to ask you to do now is seek the good of the people who caused your suffering. This is why it's important to understand the pronouns in this passage. God said, I'm the one who took you into exile. And you pray to me for the prosperity of this city because I'm the one who wills it. Now, God's not foolish. There's a couple of things I want to highlight as to why he would do this. First of all, he is reminding them that their prosperity does not depend on a human king or a glorious temple. Amen. He's saying you can build your lives right here and it can be good. You can, you can live lives where you are fruitful and multiplying. It's the language of life. It's the language of creation. Number two, it's divine logic. He's saying if the tide rises, all boats rise. And so he's saying, go ahead and make the best life you can there because even if the Egyptians over in Egypt town, and even if the Assyrians over there in Assyrian corner, and even if the Babylonians who kind of live all over the place, even if they benefit, guess what? It's better for all of you. When we all do well, everyone does well. 
And so rather than seeking to fill in swimming pools just so that certain people can no longer swim in them, how about we open those swimming pools up and say, it's better when we can all swim. And then finally, it is because it is consistent with God's timeless character as it was revealed from the very beginning. Moses had this wonderful statement as he was preaching to the people on the plains of Moab. He said to them, as they were preparing to go into the land, back in a much better time, he said, what other great nation has blank like us? Now, I have asked students to fill in that blank, and they will say things that are theologically seemingly astute, like, what other great nation has a God like ours? What other great nation has a religious system like ours? But if you actually go to Deuteronomy, what you will find is that Moses said, what other great nation has laws that are just like ours? You see, part of the reason why the Bible teaches about social justice is because when things are right for everyone, it raises the tide for all in that place. This is not political. It's God's wisdom. It is God's way. And so what God is saying, even in the, by the rivers of Babylon, I am still that same God. And do what I have called you to do from the beginning, which is to be a holy people set apart to reflect me to the world in a way that brings glory. And one of the ways you do that is by being a people characterized by what is right. And so what you find here in Jeremiah 29 is the greatest commandment in an unexpected place. You see, what God is actually talking about here is about loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then loving your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying, don't worry about whether your neighbor is from Egypt, from Assyria, from Babylon, from the northern kingdom of Israel, or if he's one of us southerners, one of the good ones. Don't worry if you don't even know where they're from. Because by this time, there was so much intermingling and intermixing going on that there were people who didn't even know what their people were and who they were. They were just mutts in the most glorious, beautiful way. In fact, just a side note, the Samaritans that the Jews hated so much in the Gospels were the descendants of many of those people, the poor in the land who mixed after years and years of war-torn just subsistence living. But God loves those people. He treasures them. And so he's saying to the exiles, instead of seeing yourselves as broken people who should just be lamenting their fate, you are my people no matter where you are and where I've planted you. And so flourish, become that tree that bears fruit and provides shade to all. Amen. And if you think this is just 
Oh, you teach Old Testament. This doesn't have relevance today. I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, here's the beauty. Jesus says, I agree. (laughs) Jesus had many times when he was asked, who is my neighbor? And he told them, hey, let me tell you a story. And y'all know the story about the Good Samaritan. And they said, well, you know, do you really mean everyone? And then he would say things like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, Jesus absolutely wholeheartedly would have co-signed the letter to the exiles that Jeremiah wrote and brought. Because really, we all know, he is the great I am. He is the one who wrote that letter. And so I want to bring it to us. Strong Tower. When I look at the church today, I see a lot of resonances with the exilic community. I don't, I don't want to push it too far, but there are things we can very much relate to. Jesus says, if you follow me, you're going to find that there are going to be times when the world will hate you. Remember, it hated me first. He also said that there, you are in this world, but you're not of it. As, as children born again, your baptism is not one of this world. And your birth is now of a new creation, a new kingdom. And when, when Jesus was confronted head on by Pilate, he said, you don't have anything to worry about. My kingdom's not of this world. And what Jesus, hey, we, we misteach this sometimes too, by the way. It's not Jesus saying my kingdom's in the sky and it's clouds, and we're going to all have little wings and stuff. What he's saying is the way my kingdom works, you don't know anything about it because I don't do things the way you do. I don't need a sword. I don't wage culture war. In fact, um, Japanese artist Makoto Fujimura has a beautiful way of expressing this ethic. He says... It's about time the church went away from culture war where we are against everything. And instead, what if we saw ourselves as people of culture care who saw the world, all of it, as soil to be tended because rather than laying waste to the earth with fire and swords, what if we took those tools and we tilled the ground and we planted, and we harvested. And so like the exiles, when I think about a church like Strong Tower, I see opportunity. Because in some ways, look at where you are located. The history in this place. The names of the streets here. I, uh, hey. Uh, we all know <laughs> I don't, have to, I don't have to rehearse that. You know, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. But what an amazing God that he would plant this church in this corner, in this place. And so there are going to be times that you will feel like the exiles. You will feel like we're taking fire from all sides. I got people in the world who think I'm crazy. I got fellow Christians who are criticizing me. I got people who claim to follow Jesus who think I'm a heretic. And so, yes, at times you will feel at a place like Strong Tower like you're living by the rivers of Babylon. 
So my word for you is what Jeremiah would have said, I think, if he was here. Keep planting. Keep building. Keep caring for this place and settle. Now, is there a day coming when the exile ends? Absolutely. But I am not going to be one of those false prophets who is here to try and tell you a day and a time. And I'm not going to try and tell you about tea leaves and reading Revelation a certain way. And um, Jesus said very clearly, no man knows the time or the day, right? Why are we worried about it then? Just let it, let, let's just let it happen when it happens. But until then, these are the words of life. Plant, build, cultivate. Marry, give your children in marriage. Let them be fruitful and multiply in this place. Because when this place prospers, all will prosper, including ourselves. And this is the kind of thing that a church like Strong Tower can be such a powerful part of. You know, um, Cornell West had a great way of, of phrasing what justice is. He said, it's really just what love looks like in public. Just as uh, mercy is affection in private. So. And God is a God of both. Ultimately, because of Jesus and the cross, mercy triumphs over judgment. But until the day when our king does come back and finally sets everything right, one of the things we can do is be his representatives. And we can go about culture care by showing the places where things are not as they should be and working hard to make them as God would want them to be. So when Tim Keller says this as I close, when you experience God, it is deeply personal, but it's not at all private. Sometimes we make our faith a little too personal in the sense that we don't really let it radiate and show anything anywhere. But what an amazing place Strong Tower would be if we could love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and at the same time love our neighbors as ourselves by seeking their justice where we have the power to do so, and by showing mercy when we do not have the power to care. Let's close in prayer. Father, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share this letter from Jeremiah. They are words of life for a people in exile. And though we're not in exile, I think there are so many in this room who can relate to the heart and the feeling and the emotions of those that were living by the rivers of Babylon. We have all known our seasons of dryness. We have all known our seasons where even bitterness may have been hard for us to swallow. We have all known seasons where we feel like life just is not fair. And in that, this letter is beautifully reminding us that God is not isolated to a certain temple or a certain place, but he is here in this place and he cares and he loves you and he also loves the city into which he has planted you.
And so my prayer of blessing for Strong Tower is that it would be the kind of church that becomes a fruitful, fertile tree that bears its fruit in its season. And those fruit would nourish and feed all who come. And the shade it provides would bring relief to all who need it. I pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Strong Tower, would you get on your feet, please? And bless God for the word and for the man of God who delivered the word. Would you give God a, a praise? Amen. Amen. Wow. Amen. Let's receive the benediction. Thank you for this word that we needed, Lord. To remind us not to be weary in well-doing, but neither to think that we are unique or different as if we and we alone have been called by you to do the things that we're doing. Lord, we humble ourselves. We ask you to forgive us. And we do ask, Lord God, that you would bless us in such a way that we can flourish wherever we are. For those, Lord God, in our body and those in our body who have family members and friends who uh, may suffer on the margins of society. Lord, I thank you that you have not forgotten us. You have not forgotten them. You've empowered us, Lord God, to be a blessing wherever we are. And it begins with prayer, praying for our enemies and showing up in real and tangible ways to minister to those who even have hurt us and put us down. Uh, oh God, oh God, this is something that is beyond us, which is why we need your spirit. Yes. We need the example of your son. Thank you that we are not called to do any of this in our own strength. We pray for the shalom of Nashville. We pray for the shalom of Franklin. We pray for the shalom of Columbia, Tennessee. We pray, Lord God, for the shalom of Dixon. We pray for the shalom of Pulaski, Tennessee. We pray for the shalom of Washington, D.C. We pray for the shalom of Florida. We pray for the shalom of Texas. We pray, God, for your peace, for the flourishing of all people so that the boats may rise and affect and improve upon the lives of those who are disinherited. We bless you. This is the kingdom of God. May we never forget it. Thank you again for this word of God, from the man of God, for this time to the people of God. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. To him be all of the glory, all of the power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forevermore. And all of God's exiles said, amen. Come on, give Jesus some praise. And before you leave, you got to hug at least two or three people, all right? Before you leave, you can't leave unless you hug about two or three people. Have a blessed day. We'll see you Wednesday. We'll see you Saturday. Amen.